0: Well, good evening, uh, Springfield Church of Christ, Wednesday night Bible study. I wish I could have you all around the table, as we usually do going around the table for prayer requests. I certainly know that we continue to be in one another's prayer as we pray for health from the uh, COVID-19 virus that's a threat out there. Uh, We pray for jobs and job situations and other ongoing health situations. Uh, I think about our Bible study group with the Markhams and how they've all been through the flu, but then I'm concerned about Ken's heart and the needs that have to be met there uh, with the ablation and then a pacemaker for him. Uh, Of course, we're always praying for Miss Pat that she have steady hands and a strong heart. Uh, It's good to have Bo back with us from California. I'm sure he's had a good time. He'll tell us all about that. I pray for Doug and Jean, of course. Uh, They've been Kind of shut in for some time now with the things that that she's going through and that Doug's going through as well. But let's not uh, forget to pray for each other. Uh, Then let's think about those that are still working in the healthcare industry. Uh, Stephanie and Pepper both uh, working there. Skylar as well. Uh, If she gets a chance to listen to this, I know they all work with people on a daily basis. So they're getting used now to having their temperature taken and everything else going on. Uh, but they have lives and families, too, to care for, and I want to keep them in our prayer. Uh, we have students, of course. Uh, Olivia and Dom may listen to this, and for their senior years, uh, things have changed quite a bit for them. And so I just pray that God will give them direction and hope for the future, uh, as well as all of our students are out right now. I uh, Just pray for them. Uh, I know there's more that we could pray for. We always miss our dear Connie. Uh, I need to check in with her, actually, but we pray for her breathing and especially her protection during this time of of virus as well. Well, uh, uh, tonight I want to go back to Romans 14. Uh, Our study, of course, has been through the book of Romans, and I I just want to begin with a note. You know, there's no greater privilege we enjoy and protect on this earth than our freedom. Uh, We believe in it so strongly, we pulled free of England's king over 244 years ago, We gained it, we protected so much, we even help others whose freedom is being threatened. And I think Paul in his heart really wanted people to understand what freedom was, and he said in Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again with a yoke of slavery. Uh, This is the epitome of the Christian way of life. It's our attitude as believers. Uh, And so, As we read in in Romans 14, we're told, uh, to begin with, in verse 1, to accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Uh, Why can't we live like that? Uh, Countless squabbles within congregations could have been avoided if the teaching of Romans 14 had been known and had been followed all along. Of course, uh, precious friendships that had been broken uh, would never have been broken precious families uh, that have been divided over minor matters that are in no way essential to the Christian faith and have no bearing on one's salvation uh, would have been kept whole. So I want to clarify that things not essential to salvation, they're really not worth fighting over. And the Bible is very clear about God's condemnation over those who divide the church over things on which his word is silent. Uh, We trade the, the love of God when we do that for the law of the pack because of the following tendencies we all have. Uh, We all have, first, a predilection to comparison. We prefer things that are the same, uh, predictability and common interest. One one of my favorite characters uh, on TV is Detective Adrian Monk, and a great time with the way health is right now to think about him. But he always had a saying, uh, I don't mind change as long as I'm not there when it happens unfortunately uh, we look at externals a lot in our life and, and we don't like the change that comes and sometimes our attitude prevents us from seeing the big picture. God never intended for all of his children to be the same. He ha- He's not a God that's into cookie cutter or paper doll Christians. That's not his work. That's the work of mankind. Uh, that's the work of something we call legalism in the church which I think a better definition of it is forensic faith that requires that we discriminate on a real or personal law of right and wrong uh, that requires we all think alike, act alike, be alike, that our convictions are the same, that we we dress the same, that we appear the same. But I believe grace finds pleasure in diversity. Uh, Grace encourages us as individuals made in the image of God, and it leaves room for differences of opinion. Legalism throughout the Bible and Jesus' ministry will reject prostitutes and thieves and everyday people but the grace in Christ it welcomed them as they are in their worship to anoint feed or to speak from a nearby cross and say today uh, you'll be with me in paradise and before we'll be able to demonstrate grace to others we've got to stop the, con- the tendency uh, to compare another tendency we have is to love control uh, too much In the 14th chapter of Romans, he's discussing the favorite indoor sport of Christians, and that is trying to change each other. And as this passage is going to indicate, it's been a major problem in the church for centuries. All through the history of the church, the problem rose from the attitude most of us share. Uh, I am sure that God is clearly pleased with the way we live, but then there are those others around that he's not so pleased with. At least that's our attitude you know they drink beer and play cards they go to the movies they, they smoke those nasty cigarettes and cigars they work on Sundays uh, they wear too much makeup or cologne their skirts are too short their pants are too tight uh, they dance or they play musical instruments or use zippers instead of buttons I don't know there's all kinds of, of ridiculous divisions uh, there's an endless list of things that can be included Debatable matters that the church has never been able to settle because of a misunderstanding of what Paul is going to talk about in this very passage. You know, we have spent our time talking about the vertical grace that comes from God to us. And Paul is now talking about the horizontal grace we should have with each other. That God demonstrated his love to us by sending Jesus to die for our, our sins by his grace, even while we were still sinners. And all you got to do is go back and read Romans 5 verse 8 for that. Uh, we can't pay him back. We didn't deserve it. And Paul tells us in Ephesians. That we're to treat others the same way. That God has treated us. And it all really comes down to our attitude. Victor Frankl who survived a concentration camp of Germany. Said everything can be taken from a man but one thing. To choose one's attitude in any given set." Of circumstances. I've always liked the illustration Chuck Swindoll used to tell about the hummingbird and the vulture. Uh, They both fly over our nation's deserts and all a vulture can see is rotting meat because that's what they look for. They thrive on the diet but hummingbirds, they'll ignore the smelly flesh of dead animals. Instead they look for the colorful uh, cactus blossoms and other desert plants. The vultures live on what was, they live on the past. They fill themselves with what is dead and gone, but a hummingbird lives on what is. They seek new life and fill themselves with uh, freshness and life. Each one of those birds finds exactly what they're looking for. And I would say we do too, as believers. And before we proceed, uh, we need to establish one thing. We're not talking about tolerance the way society defines it. Chuck Colson used to say, What our culture really insists on isn't tolerance, but rather a forced neutrality. That is, not ever voicing disagreement or objection to anything. For example, when followers of Jesus look at the increasing popularity of Islam in America, uh, genuine tolerance, what does it really look like? Well, one person would say, Christians should say, Well, we think the main ideas of Islam are not true because they're in conflict with the Christian faith. But we certainly uh, affirm the right of Muslims to practice their faith freely, without hindrance. But the forced neutrality, Colson observes, uh, it wouldn't accept that. It insists that Christians say, well, you know, Islam is, is just as true and valid a way to know God as any other religion is, including the Christian faith. So we need to agree we're not talking about an anything-goes tolerance The universalism that all roads lead to heaven when they don't. Uh, You just need to be sincere. What we're talking about is room within the Christian faith for differences of opinion over personal convictions. Uh, And sometimes that means we're dealing with Christian taboos. You know, all the the no-nos of the Christian life that we either grew up with or we encounter from place to place. Uh, And the question of how much fellowship can you have with somebody who lives in a different way than you do? Uh, Who doesn't approve of the things you do as a Christian? And I think it's important to note that this whole section of Romans 14, it deals with that problem, and it's an extended commentary on what the Apostle Paul has already shared with us, uh, that the command of Jesus is in loving one another. In fact, I, I think this is kind of a continuation of what he's talking about back in chapter 13, verse 8 of Romans, when he says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt. To love one another and Romans 14 it's just part of how we love one another and it's been the subject ever since uh, the apostle turned to the practical side of his letter uh, from chapter 12 on uh, in fact we know from that point on that love it's going to have to be serving that's the nature of love it serves that's why we have spiritual gifts to serve one another and love also has to be genuine uh, it can't be phony, can't be forced, can't be a put on kind of mask or love. It's got to be real. And in chapter thirteen, we love that we learn that love has to be submissive, uh, especially to the authorities in the state. And boy, that's being tested now, isn't it? Uh, and the powers that be, because God put them there. And then the latter part of chapter thirteen, he told us love is universal; that we owe it to everyone, without exception, and that we owe no man anything but. That continuing debt to love one another. And that's a universal debt we continually have to be paying to everyone that we meet. Now, in chapter 14, we learn that as we meet people, love's going to have to be patient and tolerant of other people's views. And it begins with our actions towards someone who we regard as, as less enlightened, uh, maybe, than ourselves. I mean, think for a moment and listen to what Paul said again in, in verse 1. He said, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. There's a practical section concerning uh, religious scruples. Uh, The idea to accept or to receive someone literally from the Greek means take them to yourself. And it involves the idea of hospitality. And how can a conscientious Christian throw his arms around somebody as a brother or sister in an act of expressing welcome and warmth of love And then raise some questions about them that are destructive or have no bearing on their eternal destiny. The word for disputable matters is what we get the word scruple from. It's from the Latin word scrupulous that means a small sharp stone like in a man's shoe. You could think about what that feels like. It creates a difficulty walking, creates a little pain, a little sharp pain in a man's shoe, a trouble Or doubt, and what Paul is saying is don't do anything that would cause pain to your brother. Matters about doubtful things are all over in Scripture. Uh, It dealt with days, with drinking and eating meat, and our list uh, since Paul's day has just grown uh, exponentially. The one thing we have to do is is make up our minds not to argue with someone uh, for the sake of that person's mind. Uh, Opinion is all you can have in these arenas because Scripture is silent and your conscience is the rule in this. You've got the mind of Christ. Scripture is deliberately silent about certain things and I think it's so that you are able to show the mind of Christ. And we, we must not be presumptuous and judge others in this area. But we welcome people because God has welcomed us and them. I mean, it's very plain, isn't it? Do not reject him. Don't ignore him. Don't treat him as a second-class citizen. You accept him, but not for the purpose of arguing with him. Don't accept him in order to debate with him. Just without passing judgment, on disputable matters. To accept him means that regardless of where you may struggle with someone or what you might personally struggle with, you've got to realize they're brothers and sisters in the family of God. You didn't make them a part of the family. The Lord did. So you're not, I mean, you are to accept them just because they're brothers and sisters. And you're not to accept them with the idea of immediately straightening them out in the areas where you think they're weak. Uh, You know, I have that personal mantra I've shared with you many times. You gotta catch a fish before you clean it. And I think that's a very necessary, practical admonition because, uh, honestly, it begins with us. Many of us love to argue. And sometimes the first thing we want to do is argue somebody into agreement. This, this part of the Bible says, no, you don't do that. Uh, to understand what you are to do, first of all, you accept people. Let them know you see them as a brother or sister. You establish the boundary of your relationship by some gesture or word of acceptance, so they don't feel like you're attacking them. Let them have the basic recognition you belong to one another. Now Paul goes on to define more precisely the areas of debate he he has in mind in verse two. Romans fourteen two says, "One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables." Did you hear that, vegetarians? <laughs> now, this is not dealing with nutrition, of course. It, it it comes from the background of the early church, in which there's a real moral question about eating meat. Not only were there Jewish restrictions against certain forms of meat, uh, Jews would not eat pork, uh, and even beef and lamb had to be kosher. Uh, I don't know if many of you know what it means to be prepared as kosher. Some people think it just means that you have a rabbi that blesses it. Uh, It's very, uh, very different. I mean, it it includes a lot more. Uh, To be known as kosher, the mammals have to have split hooves and chew the cud. Uh, Fish have to have fins and removable scales. Uh, Certain birds, only certain birds are kosher. Uh, Generally speaking, they're birds that are non-predatory. That means pork, rabbit, eagle, owl, catfish, uh, shellfish, all that non-kosher. Can't eat them. Uh, All insects are non-kosher except in the Talmud or some later Jewish teachings. Uh, There's a small number of locusts that, that are edible. Uh, kosher species of meat and fowl have to be ritually slaughtered in a prescribed manner to be kosher. Uh, meat and dairy cannot be cooked or eaten together. I uh, can't even be in the same part of the refrigerator of a person that, that celebrates kosher. Uh, a kosher food that's processed or cooked together with a non-kosher food uh, becomes non-kosher. Uh, for example, food coloring from, is derived from shellfish often, and if it's used in, in a cake, can't eat it. Uh, The animal has to be slaughtered in a specific manner according to the laws of Shekita. Uh, The Jews have followed for generations. The is a highly trained butcher in the act of slaughter and has laws that have to be followed. In fact, they have to be of the highest moral character among the Jews and have a high level of Yerat Shemayim, or they have to be in awe of heaven. The knife they use has to be two times the width of the neck of the animal they're slaughtering. The blade is checked for nicks against their fingernail for burrs uh, in case uh, any burr would actually tear the flesh of the animal instead of cutting it and causing the animal undue suffering. Then they have to inspect every internal organ of the animal for signs of disease or imperfections that would make that animal non-kosher. And after an arduous process of slaughter, the meat is is drained, it's soaked in water, uh, in ice water. It's drained again, it's salted, it's drained three more times before a priest can, or, or a rabbi can pronounce it as kosher. I mean, that's careful. So a Jew, or even one raised as a Jew after he's become a Christian, always had a great emotional difficulty in eating meat. And I still wonder what the Apostle Paul's reaction was when a Christian uh, he was hand, first handed his first ham sandwich or bacon. You know, I, I think he ate it. And maybe he thought, you know, bacon. Where have you been all my life? But I don't know what this feeling uh, was for him. He probably struggled in a lot of ways. Then there was a problem in Rome and in other uh, pagan Greek and Roman cities about the matter of eating meat that was offered to idols. Some Christians said that if you did that, it was tantamount to to worshiping the idol. You were no different than the people who went in and worshipped these idols, and therefore it placed a stigma on your faith to eat meat that had been offered to idols. Other Christians said, how can that be? I mean, meat is meat. You know, the fact that someone else thinks of it as offered to an idol, it doesn't mean I have to think about it like that. Uh, And In these pagan cities, the best meat was always sold in the butcher shop next to the temple, because that's where they made the most money, and the sacrifices were sold to the populace. Uh, and it was a real problem in the church. And as in every area of this type, there's always two viewpoints. There's a, a liberal or, or a broad viewpoint that says, hey, it's perfectly all right to do this. And then there's the stricter viewpoint that said, no, it's it's wrong. You can't do this. It really doesn't make a difference uh, what you're arguing about if this area is debatable. You know, something about which scriptures don't even speak. And you end up with a twofold division among brothers and sisters sometimes. And you could put many of the modern problems we have into this category. Should a Christian drink wine or beer? Should you go to the movies? If you do, I mean, what rating should you go to? Should you dance? Uh, our church has a, a bylaw that says you can't dance in the church. Uh, obviously, they've never watched the kids during VBS. <laughs> I mean, what about uh, card playing or working on Sunday? Some of the things I've already mentioned fall into that category. And let me be very clear that there, again, are areas of Scripture that speak about things that are not debatable. It's always wrong to be drunk. It's always wrong to commit adultery or have sex outside of marriage. Those kind of things are clearly wrong in the Old and New Testament. God has spoken and He has judged. Christians are exhorted to rebuke and exhort and reprove one another, and if necessary, even discipline one another according to patterns set out in Scripture. Now, that's not judging each other in those areas because the Word of God is already judged and pronounced what's wrong. But there are those areas that are left open. And the amazing thing to me, and the significant thing here, is that Scripture always leaves those open. It's not just Paul that doesn't give a yes or no answer about some of these things. It's God that chooses not to do so. There's an area in other words where Paul or excuse me where God wants to leave it up to the individual as to what he or she does. And as you see later on, God expects it to be based on a deep conviction by that individual. But it's up to them. It's an area that Paul is talking about here and and he clearly calls those that are strong in the faith while the narrow party is those that are weak in the faith. Remember, Jesus himself said back in John chapter 8, uh, verses 31 and 32, If anyone continues in my word, he'll be my disciple indeed, and he will know the truth, and the truth will set him what? He'll set him free. The mark of understanding truth is freedom. It's liberty. It's why Paul calls the person who understands truth the one who's strong in the faith, while those who don't understand it clearly are weak in the faith. They don't understand the delivering character of of truth. I think William Barclay in his commentary on Romans handled it well and he said, it's it's that way for two reasons uh, that such a man is weak in the faith. number one, he hasn't yet discovered the meaning of Christian freedom in his heart yet. And in his heart, he's still a legalist. He still sees Christianity as a thing of rules and regulations. And his whole aim is to govern his life by running a series of observances and frightened of Christian freedom or liberty. And secondly, maybe he hasn't liberated himself through the belief in the efficacy of works. In his heart, he still believes he can gain God's favor by doing certain things or not doing other things. Basically, he is still trying to earn a right relationship with God, and he hasn't accepted the way of grace. He's still thinking of what he can do for God more than what God has already done for him. And I think William Barclay was right. But that's the problem here. It's the problem of a Christian who's not yet understanding fully the freedom that Christ has brought him. Uh, And Romans chapter 14 verse 3 tells us the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. In other words, the strong one can't reject the one who's still struggling and who's weak. Uh, The word look down here is really a word that means to push him out. The strong must not push him out or exclude him. uh, And I think that means You don't think about them in a disdainful or a contemptuous way. You know, don't look down on these people. And that's a tendency I think a lot of believers have because we feel we're free in certain areas. Uh, Thus, we get offended and we don't behave as freely as we think uh, they should. And it's wrong. And Paul says the strong cannot reject the weak. Uh, You must not say wrong things about them. You must not gossip about them or ridicule them. I always like the the old definition, someone wants to find a legalist as someone who lives in mortal terror that someone somewhere is truly enjoying their faith. (laughs) But we can't think of legalists that way because that's not the motivation that governs them. Uh, There's another reason, and therefore we limit ourselves to that, and and that is not to think of them as motivated simply because they want to spoil it for everybody else. Uh, We're not to exclude these people from contact with one another or form little cliques in the church that shut other people out of social fellowship uh, it's wrong and paul clearly says it's wrong on the other hand he goes on to say in verse 3 uh, the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does because god has accepted him so the other side of the coin is those who struggle can't look down on those who have freedom in these areas Those who think it's morally wrong for a Christian to to drink wine or beer must not look down on the one who's free to do so. Uh, And the word to judge or condemn here means to sit in judgment of them. And that involves not just criticizing people or censoring them. It means, as in the old days, you literally take up a chair, sit down, and say, let me tell you what's wrong with your life. Uh, And you assume God's standard over them. And there are a lot of reasons why people accept and make certain, certain choices. And we can't impose our mind upon them. Uh, and that's given, me a, given a rise to a, a tremendous distortion of Christianity in the eyes of the world. It's given rise to the idea that Christianity is a, a, a do-not-do-something or a, a, a do-or-don't religion. And it distorts the freedom of the message of the gospel. It propagates the feeling that Christianity is just nothing more than a bunch of rules to be obeyed, and the freedom of the sons of God is denied. The world gets this totally false picture of what the church is all about, and that's why many people won't even touch the church with a 25-foot pole, even though they're fantastically interested in the gospel. They see the church as having imposed standards and rules of conduct that have nothing to do with scriptures, and if we're honest, they're right. But as another point, we come to the reason that governs this kind of conduct, uh, and it's really set forth all the way from verse 4 to verse 12, and it's the central part of this section. The apostle gives us three great facts all supporting and explaining this great principle involved. And He says the first reason why you're not to look down on the weak or judge or condemn the strong is that because it's not your responsibility to change your brother in this area. He is not your servant. So anytime you struggle with someone, you need to remind yourself, not mine. They're the servant of the Lord. And Paul says in verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's pretty plain, isn't it? The reason we're not to judge each other is that we're not responsible for another's conduct in this area. Uh, it's he's not your servant, Paul says. The Lord chose him, so the Lord's the one that's responsible to change him. The Lord chose him. He didn't ask you or your opinion about him. Uh, ha- honestly, sometimes in church, uh, as I look out, there's a good percentage of people that wouldn't be in church if I got to choose. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't know you that well, but, uh, but I didn't choose you, so I don't have uh, to change you either. And you don't have the responsibility to change me. The thing that Paul brings out in verse four is that the man under conviction or, or under consideration is being changed. And he is on his way to standing, Paul says, because God can make him stand. It's really wrong. Uh, if there's anything really wrong in his life, God will straighten him out and it's not up to us. I always used to love those little pens that, that sometimes churches handed out that had the words P B P G I N F W M Y. Because somebody would always ask you, what does that mean? You remember what it meant? Uh, It was the first letter of, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. Uh, We're all in the process of change. The Lord is doing it, and he will make us stand. Uh, I I like the Phillips translation of this verse. It says, God is well able to transform men into servants who are satisfactory. And, And that's exactly what Paul's relying on. Now, the first point is, it's not your responsibility to change someone that's not your servant. Uh, And then he goes on to say, uh, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. But each one should be fully convinced, and this is in verse 5-8, through uh, in his own mind. But he who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone. None of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Now this this is a huge, impressive point. Because Paul is saying at this point, God can read hearts. You can't. I can't. Uh, These distinctions and differences of viewpoint arise out of an honest conviction that God sees and knows me, even though you can. So the individual is not simply being difficult because he doesn't agree with you. He's acting on the basis of what he feels is right, and we have to give the benefit of the doubt on that. Believe that he's intent on being real and authentic before God and being true to him, just like you are. And if he feels able to indulge in some of these things that you think are not right, at least see him as doing so because he feels that God's not displeased with him uh, on that basis. Or if he feels limited and he feels he shouldn't do certain things, don't get upset with him because he's not moved into freedom yet. Remember, he really feels that God would be displeased if he did those things. And it's an honest conviction. And we have to live by our honest convictions honestly. The apostle makes clear here that every man should have that kind of conviction because he said, "You know, let in verse uh, 4, let every man be fully persuaded in his own heart. You don't do things because it's always the way it's been done. You don't act certain ways in church or in life because that's always been accepted. You don't go from tradition or because you were brought up that way or, or even because it just feels right. You find some reason in the Bible for it. You seek justification from the word of God and the will of God, and you may have to change your mind on some truth as it develops in you, but at least let it be on the ground of a conviction of the heart and mind. Well, the next thing Paul says is that God sees both of these men and both of these viewpoints as honoring him. The one who thinks Sunday is a special day, that it ought to be kept different from all other days, is doing so as unto the Lord, and you respect and honor that. And the one who says no, when we're in Christ, days really don't mean anything. They're not set aside for any special purpose. So, you know, I feel every day is alike. And if I want to if I want to worship on Saturday, if I want to worship the Lord on Friday, it's okay. Uh, well, don't get upset about that. Because they're doing that out of a deep conviction of his heart. When I did my internship at Kettering Hospital, uh, it's a seventh-day Adventist hospital, their day of worship is the Sabbath of Saturday. And so their Sundays are free, whereas mine was not. And I don't judge them on that because there's a conviction that they feel from Scripture they can support uh, to do that, and it's okay. And the one who drinks beer gives thanks to God for the refreshment of it or the taste of it. I, I've never personally drank, don't intend to. Uh, but if they they feel proper that it's okay to do that, uh, they're the same boat as the one who says, no, I, I can't drink beer, I I only drink coffee, uh, Coffee, you know, I give thanks for caffeine. <laughs> uh, coffee can do as much physical harm as beer, but in, in either case, it's not a moral question. It, it is a question of what the heart is doing in the eyes of God. And sometimes we're too harsh with one another. I heard some time ago of a girl who was a converted nightclub singer. She was a fresh, new Christian, and she was asked to sing at a church meeting. And she wanted to do her absolute best for the Lord that she'd come to love. and She dressed up the best way she knew how. And she sang a song that she thought was expressive of her faith. And she did it with a torchy style of a nightclub singer, which she was. And somebody came up to her afterwards and just ripped into her and said, how can you sing a song like that and claim to be a Christian? God can never be happy with a woman who dresses the way you do and sings in that kind of style it's just offensive to God. And that new believer, that young Christian girl, was so taken aback, she stood there for a minute and she just burst into tears. And she turned and ran. Now, that was wrong, and it was a hurtful thing to do. Granted, later on, she might have changed her style, but God had the right to change her, not the person who spoke to her. Her heart was right, and God saw her heart and honored in love. I, I think that was something he was pleased with, not displeased. We have to remember, we're not here to make distinctions where God would not. And the last thing that Paul says in this area, and we'll wrap up, is that our relationship with one another, it's more important than lifestyle. Look at verse seven and eight of Romans 14. None of us live to himself alone. None dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Basically what Paul is saying here is simply living is liberty and dying is, is limitation. In the context, there's surely that's surely what he means. He's not talking about funerals and life and death in that sense. He's talking about those who feel free to enjoy liberty to its fullest. They're living while others, because of the deep convictions of their own they're limited and to that degree they're dying because death equals limitation but whether we live or whether we die that's not the important thing paul says the important thing is we belong to jesus and he understands and that's what we need to remember in our relationship with one another christ is all we belong to the lord we're brothers and sisters servants of each other and of the lord And he alone has the right to change us. The third and final fact that supports this governing principle is that Christ alone has won. He has earned, he has claimed the right to judge. Verse 9, for this very reason Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as I lived, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's stating a fact, friends. Again, that the Lord alone has the right to judge us in these areas. He has the ability to do so because he alone has been involved in both death and life. He died, and so he knows what ultimate and utter limitation is. He gave himself up by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. He deliberately allowed himself to be restricted in many things, and he knows what that's like. And Now he lives, and so he's free to do anything and everything he desires. He knows what life is, and he alone has the right. He's won it. He's earned it. He's claimed it to judge us. And so Paul says, stop trying to take his place. You know, take out your wallet. Look at your picture on your your license. It doesn't say God. Stop trying to be Christ to the rest of the world or playing God to each other. You, the weak, why do you judge your brother? You, the strong, why do you look down on your brother? It's wrong. You're trying to take Christ's place when you do that. But remember that all of us men and women alike, we are all brothers and sisters together and we all stand individually before God's judgment seat. See, that's true in a present and ultimately in a future sense as well. There's a sense in which we are before him all the time and we have to give an account to him and him alone. But there is coming a day that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 4, verse five, where he says the Lord returns and brings to light all the hidden things of the heart. All the things that we thought would never be brought out into the light We have to give an account to the Lord. That's where we stand. Again, Paul sums up everything in the first part. We're not servants of each other. We're all struggling. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all in process. We're all subject to change. We're all trying to understand truth more clearly as we go on. And we're all being freed by it. But in the process, the only one who has the right to do anything about it is the Lord. And the great principle in these areas were to quit judging one another, quit showing disdain or contempt and ridicule or separation, but simply learn what it means to love one another and show it by accepting one another. For the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's close our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the Springfield Church of Christ. And I know that my Wednesday night crew may be gathering around a computer or uh, their iPhones right now, uh, listening. Maybe there's some that don't attend our church that are listening, and I just pray this is a time of encouragement for them to open the Bible. Uh, Lord, we may be socially distancing, but our hearts are with you at all times. And there's no distance between. (laughs) There's not even an inch between us because... You've chosen by your Holy Spirit to take up residence within us. And we're never alone. And so, Father, I ask that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit, that you would watch over, guide, and protect us, and that, Lord, you would just teach us the joy of fellowship so when we come back together, it's better, it's stronger, it's more appreciated than before. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless each of you, and we'll see you next Wednesday.